Wonderful. So we are joined by the good people of Ellen this morning, who are also part of our church family, as well as perhaps Lifestyle tomorrow night. You never know, although it's not tomorrow night then, it's tonight. Uh, And uh, also Cafe Church. So let's just give them a wave and a cheer. Hi, guys. Okay, it was a wave. Let's try a cheer now. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Very good. Um, So I don't know whether you can imagine what it's like to be a pastor. It's a very strange thing to have your entire life wrapped up in what you do for your work. Um, and and uh, uh, some of you, well, hopefully most of you know that my wife, Taryn, and I, we've just recently come back from a sabbatical, which, if I'm honest, for the first few weeks was horribly uncomfortable and a bit scary. Because, you know, um, like I say, being a pastor, you're, you, it's like your vocation and your work and your personal walk with Jesus and your faith and your prayer life, and all of these things are all wrapped up together. And then for three months, we just unplugged from what we do for a job. And it felt like, gosh, what actually is there left, if I'm honest? And it was a pretty vulnerable place to be. And uh, one of the really beautiful and so precious things that I will never forget about that three months was the way that the Lord started to meet me in the pages of Scripture. It was so sweet. And, and it, it was like someone had given me a whole new book, you know, or, or someone had spiked the old book. You know, it was like, gosh, there were there so many things in there that I'd never seen before. And some of them were just so comforting, and some of them were so encouraging, and lots of them were horribly uncomfortable. Because there were things in there that actually you sort of think, should that even be in there? Uh, and, and why have I never noticed that before? But the problem is, now that I've noticed it, now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. And, and uh, I talked about some of those things last week. If you weren't here, uh, it's available on the web. I just encourage you to listen to it. But um, one of the things has really to do with the nature of discipleship. Um, when Jesus is walking around on earth, and uh, he, he's unbelievably popular, right? So he's got, at times, thousands of people following him. And every time, even when he tries to get away from the crowds and try and find somewhere where no one else is, uh, almost immediately there's a crowd there. There's even one time when he and his disciples are rowing across a lake, and at the same time as that, there are people who are running so fast that they get the long way round, and they get there before them, which just goes to show that maybe they're not completely brilliant at rowing or something like that. But uh, wherever he goes, there are people, just thousands and thousands of people. And when he's right at the peak of his popularity, it's really, really surprising how he responds to that. Because I don't know about you, but, but I would have imagined that he would have said, brilliant, I'm so pleased you're here. All are welcome. I'm delighted that you're here. And yet actually what he seems to be doing at every turn is trying to persuade people to not follow him. It's really weird. So he'll say things like, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Or he says, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Or he says, 
If anyone come, comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. I mean, what? This guy needs some serious PR. You know, he needs someone, like some kind of agent to help him to communicate his message in a slightly more friendly way. It's almost as if what he's doing is saying, if you can do anything else other than follow me, if you can do anything else other than be my disciple, then for goodness sake, try that first. And the more that I read it, and, and the more that I read through the Gospels whilst I was away, I just found it like I couldn't unsee it, this thing of Jesus almost trying to put people off because of the cost He even has these moments where loads and loads of people are following him. And then eventually, when he said one more really, really hard thing, they just say, do you know what, this is too hard. And the crowds all leave him. And Jesus turns to his closest disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And I just found it so profoundly shocking that the, the dissonance between the, the discipleship and the way that we do the Christian life in the modern contemporary West with the discipleship that's in the book, right? So I could go online now with my phone. I could download one of, you know, thousands of podcasts that all have titles like um, uh, 10 Tips for Life-Giving Friendships or Five Keys to True pros Prosperity or Seven Ways to a Better Marriage or How to Be Successful at Work or Three Routes to a Better Life. And here is Jesus doing the precise opposite. He's saying, never mind a better life. What about a better death? Come to me and die. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. When Jesus bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. It's a death. And so the question that I was forced to ask myself again and again and again is, is a Christianity that doesn't cost me anything really Christianity at all? Do you see what I mean? It's, like, it's not fun, this, is it? But it's, it? And it's really uncomfortable, but when you see it, you can't unsee it. And so as a pastor, I feel like I've been placed in a really, really difficult position by the Lord, which is, um, do I just pretend that everything's okay and just... Uh, you know, we'll just trot on as normal, or do I begin to hold up the real picture of true discipleship, and we measure ourselves against it? We say, how's it going? How does it compare to what it is that Jesus says that true discipleship is? And so we're going to go on a series over the next weeks and months called The Cost, and uh, mostly in Matthew's gospel, we're going to look at some of the really, really hard things that Jesus says. So if you're thinking about joining our church, I'll just tell you now, this would be a terrible moment to join our church. You know, honestly, there'll be loads of other churches that will be much more fun than this. Uh, but we're going to look this, straight, this thing straight in the face, and we're going to start to just examine in our own hearts what it is that we're doing, and does it really compare with how Jesus says discipleship works. Uh, and actually what I think is that this is an invitation to all of us to just reset our own discipleship, almost like a control-alt-delete or a hard reset or whatever, you know, factory reset, an invitation to re-choose to follow Jesus, to, to look at our lives, to look at all the things that go towards making up our lives and to consider before Jesus, is Jesus worth the cost? And what's brilliant about that invitation, which actually I think will be so liberating for all of us, is... Have you ever met anyone who's just become a Christian? 
Aren't they absolutely delighted? They're thrilled. They're so excited. They're, they're so free. And I, honestly, I think that that is the joy and the freedom that is being offered to us. If we would just let go of some of the things that we hold firmly to and just give ourselves afresh to Jesus. I think that's the invitation that's being offered, to refuse lives of meaningless mediocrity and to re-choose the narrow path that leads to life. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And this morning we're in Matthew chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible with you, that's where we're going to be. Um, And we're going to read from verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Eleven words in the English version that I just read out there. Eleven words is all Jesus needed to say. And they left everything, everything to follow him. Now, just to be completely upfront and transparent about this, in some of the other Gospels, this thing plays out slightly differently. So, for example, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has already got into the boat and he's performed uh, a miracle that involves lots and lots of fish being caught really, really quickly. And in John's Gospel, we find out that Andrew uh, was already one of John the Baptist's followers. So he's already someone who's spiritually searching for, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And yet... Nevertheless, it's true to say this invitation to discipleship is actually not very long. But within it is such a powerful set of promises that what they receive is a a moment of crisis and a moment of opportunity that results in them following Jesus for the rest of their lives. Eleven words. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And uh, it seems to me that there are four things being promised in this invitation. The first one is, he says, I'll form you. I'll form you. Jesus says, verse 19, I'll make you fishers of men. And the Greek word that's translated as make there is the same word that's used when Peter is with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's up, up the mountain with Jesus. Jesus suddenly lights up lights up like a Christmas tree, you know, he's kind of glowing and shining and all of that. He's standing there with Moses and Elijah and Peter comes along and he says, I'll tell you what, why don't I make you, construct for you, form for you, three little booths, three little like shelters and and we can just stay up here on the mountain. I'll make you, I'll construct for you. And then here is Jesus, he's saying, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. The point is that Jesus is promising Simon and Andrew that if they choose to follow him, he'll be like a potter placing his hands around the clay. I'll form you into something that you weren't before. I don't know about you, I've been so struck by the uh, young Swedish girl who's, who's this 
uh, environmental activist, Greta Thunberg. She's amazing, isn't she? She's 16 years old. I was disappointed when she didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize this week. But nevertheless, what a remarkable thing. I don't know whether you saw the two pictures. Last year, there's her by herself sitting outside some government building somewhere protesting uh, on behalf of the environment. And then one year later, there, I've, I've written this down somewhere, 7,000 events in 170 countries, literally millions of people behind her. What an amazing thing. What an amazing activist. And I, I don't know about you, but it just made me feel like, gosh, if she's achieved that by 16, what have I even done with my life? You know, like, what a disappointment I am to myself that I can't achieve something like that. Because, I, I don't know about you, I want to change something about the world. I want it to be obvious when I'm dead and gone that I've left a dent, I've made a mark, something's changed, something's shifted as a result of my life. I, I, I'm desperate for that. I want to see the world change. But the truth is, I would actually just settle for changing my own heart which is much harder than it appears. Changing my own heart, the rhythms and habits and practices of my own life. I'd love to change the world, but I'd settle for changing myself. The guys in the office were mocking me. I know you find that really hard to believe, but just before we went on sabbatical, um, I'm known in our staff team for this slight quirk that I'm, I'm absolutely certain there'll be people here and also in Ellen and other places who have this quirk. I can't have a meeting with the door open. Like, I can't go to sleep with a wardrobe door open. Everything has to be closed. Hands up if you're in my club. Yes, come on. Yeah, fantastic. Like, the rest of you are just nutters, basically. But, and so the guys were saying to me before we went on sabbatical, they were saying, we will know if Jesus has met with you on your sabbatical. We will know whether you've been changed because you'll be able to have a meeting with the door open. And you'll be able to say, no, no, just leave the door open. That's fine. And just whilst I was away on sabbatical, I was just thinking about that moment and praying about it. And I, I, I felt like, goodness, if they only knew. Like, that's a tiny thing. There is way more about my life that I would want to see changed than that. Like, I horrify myself. I'm desperate to be changed. And to all of us who say to ourselves, I'll never change. Or who've ever been told, you'll never change. Jesus is making this invitation, come follow me, I'll form you. I'll make you. You can be changed. That's promise number one. Promise number two is this. I'll activate you. I'll activate you. When I was a kid, my grandma gave me a chemistry set for Christmas. I don't know whether you... Like, they pro this probably isn't even allowed anymore under like health and safety legislation. But you could go... I, I remember choosing my Christmas present from the Argos catalogue. That's how it worked in my household. And you could get a chemistry set that was about that big for about eight quid... Or you could get one that was about that big for about 13 pounds. I think for about 19 quid, you could get one that would take over your whole kitchen table, right? And, and I'll, I'll never forget the Christmas, the massive Christmas, the chemistry set arrived, and I'm like playing with all the experiments. Now, 
There was one particular experiment that involved taking a tiny piece of magnesium strip that was like a dull grey piece of metal, didn't look like anything in particular. I don't remember what you dropped it into, but you dropped it into some kind of liquid in a test tube, and suddenly this little dull grey piece of metal just came alive, and it was like fizzing, and it was like spinning around, and uh, I, I remember that, I've Googled this, I can't find it, there's no mention on Google of this, but I remember in the chemistry set instructions, it said that was called the magnesium excuse me dance. But like I say, that may be my memory. In which case, what does that say about my brain? Anyway, we'll just move on from that. But Jesus is saying, come and follow me, and I'll, I'll show you what life really is. That's the life that Jesus is offering to his disciples. You could keep doing the same routine day after day, getting up before dawn, pushing the boat out into the cold water, it's dark, it's hard work, it's unexciting, it's uneventful. Existing but never really living. Or you could have a whole new purpose. You could play your part in the recreation and the salvation of all mankind. I'll make you fishermen for people. Many of you will have had the same experience of me at primary school of being picked for teams for football, right? So you stand up against the wall and the two team captains are there. First of all, they pick the people who actually have skills and then they pick the people who are just enthusiastic. Uh, and then eventually, the way I remember it is, they said, Chuck, you can be the crowd. Uh, that's harsh, isn't it? Yeah, ah, oh, flipping ah, oh, yeah. But the point is, Jesus isn't looking for supporters. He's not... Looking for a crowd, he's looking for participants, he's looking for partners, he's looking for people who will be involved. He doesn't say, I'll make you fish, he'll just swim around behind me. He says, I'll make you fishermen, and you can be involved in the process of preaching the gospel to all creation. Maybe you're aware in your own life, in your own walk with Jesus, that somewhere along the line you became a spectator or a consumer or an onlooker. That's not God's heart for you. His invitation is that you would play your part. That's the invitation. Number three, he says, I'll deploy you. For those of you who have been aware of this passage of scripture before, don't you just love how Jesus doesn't switch metaphors? So he doesn't say to the fishermen, come, follow me, I'll make you a teacher of people. Or come, follow me, I'll make you a manager of people. Or come, follow me, I'll make you farmers of men. Or shepherds of men. He looks the fishermen in the eye and he says, I'll make you fishers of, or we normally say fishermen, don't we? I'll make you a fisherman of men. In other words, I'm not choosing somebody else to be a fisherman. I'm choosing the fisherman to be a fisherman. I'm deploying you. I've selected you. I've, I knit you together in your mother's womb. I chose the things that you would love and the things that you would be passionate about. I chose the things that would come easily to you that other people find difficult. I formed you perfectly as you. I gave you all of the experiences that you now have in your life. And now I'm deploying that. I'm deploying you to take your place in my kingdom. 
I'm going to show you what you were made for. What an amazing invitation. I'm going to show you what you were made for. I'm going to show you what your entire life has been training for. My dad was really into DIY uh, in a very eccentric way. So he was the kind of guy who just would wear a tie on every occasion, right? So uh, when he was doing DIY, he would come down in his suit and tie, and he would go into the garage where there was another suit, a three-piece suit, pinstripe three-piece suit. He'd get changed into that, and then he'd go and paint the outside of the house. Uh, and, and I know that that sounds a bit eccentric, but it's absolutely true. Just an, it was like splattered with paint and all of that, sawdust. But nevertheless, there he was to be found, painting the house in his three-piece suit. And he, he, in his garage, there was everything that you could possibly imagine and ever need for any kind of DIY. And most of it, you sort of, if you looked at it, you'd think, I have no idea what that is until he showed you what it was for. And he had this chest of drawers that was full of um, tobacco tins. And, in the tobacco, and every tobacco tin was neatly labelled with, you know, one-inch nails or three-inch screws or whatever. You know, everything was neatly labelled. But in the bottom drawer of this chest, there was a, a red metal contraption that I, I it, it, like it was about that big, and I had no idea what it was for. And then when I was doing my GCSE design and technology course, I had to make something, and, and, and I chose to make... I don't know what you call it, a drawing board. Do you call it, I think you call it a drawing board, right? So like a, you know, it had a ruler that slides up and down and all of that. And I, I made it in this case. And I tried loads of different ways of building the case in a robust way that looked good. And so I tried like nailing it and screwing it and, and putting like metal around it. it. just looked terrible. And it was also really rickety. And then my dad said, I'll tell you what, I've got just the tool. And he took me to this chest and he took out this red metal contraption and he kind of strapped it or I guess um, clamped it to the workbench and then he clamped a bit of wood down the side and a bit of wood across the top and then he attached a drill to another part of it and he just started drilling the, away these slots and then when he put these two bits of wood together what was produced was these absolutely perfect dovetail joints. It was beautiful and perfect and exactly what was required. Now, the point is that metal contraption was useless for every other job. You know, you, you, uh, you couldn't have painted the house with it. You could, I mean, you could just about have managed to bang a nail in with it, but it wouldn't have gone very well. You couldn't have screwed anything with it. It was just completely useless for every other job, but it was perfect for making dovetail joints. And my point is, when Jesus invites us to come and follow him, he's saying, I'm going to show you what you're for. Why you were created. What your purpose in life is. What an amazing opportunity, an amazing invitation. I'll deploy you. And the fourth thing, the last thing is this. He says, I'll be with you. I remember when I first expressed a call, a sense of call to be a pastor. I was about 16. And I said to my pastor, uh, listen, I think I'm called to do something a bit similar to what you're called to do. And he said, well, it's the school holidays next week. I'll pick you up at 9 o'clock on Monday morning. And so I'm, I'm like a bit terrified and also really excited. And you can imagine, I'm thinking through, I wonder what we're going to do for the, together for the day. And I'm thinking, I expect he'll take me to the Christian bookshop and we'll buy the big black Bible that's required. you know, Or perhaps we'll just sit down in a coffee shop somewhere and he will 
ask me, you know, here are some things I'm facing, some problems in the church at the moment. I wonder if you could help me solve those. Or, you know, or perhaps he'll just ask me to prepare my first sermon. In fact, I should start that now just in case he wants me to preach somewhere. You know, so I'm like studying away, just got sermon tucked away in my back pocket just if necessary. And we drove to this um, retirement home. And I'm like 16. We walk in through the doors of this retirement home. And in this retirement home are the oldest people in the world. Like, I've never seen people older than this before in my life. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my goodness, were you alive when the dinosaurs were alive? It was like, well, this is unbelievable. So we're, hi there, hi there. We're walking, going along the corridor. We got to the last room at the end of the corridor. The doors open. And as we got to the open doorway, there was a man in there who was literally bent double. You know, like his spine was so curved. And he was sat in this armchair, and he had, uh, I don't know how, like glasses that were really, really thick, but also he had this magnifying glass. And he was poring over the, the most decrepit, tired-looking Bible you've ever seen in your life. And he was looking over this thing, and he had this broad grin on his face. And uh, as I got closer to him, and remember, as he was called Charles. Uh, he, he was in his early 90s, I would say. And he said, come, come, sit down. And so I sat down next to him, and he just gleamed, like his eyes just gleamed at me. And he said to me, Chuck, tell me, what's your favorite thing about Jesus? And if I'm honest, I wasn't really completely sure what the right answer was. And I felt really awkward, and I was, you know, my mind is like scrabbling around for something to say. And so I quickly diverted the conversation. I said, well, why don't you tell me yours first? And he said, well, let me tell you my story. And uh, his story was one of uh, grief after grief after loss after loss. You know, he'd lost his... Uh, most of his family during the war and many of his close friends. He'd nursed two wives through cancer and their subsequent death. He was in agony for most of the time because of his uh, spine that was just crumbling away. But he said, Jesus has been so faithful to me. He's been my friend and he's held my hand through every part of my life. That's my favorite thing about Jesus. And that is what Jesus is offering to his disciples. It's an invitation to go and be with him. Come, follow me. Come and be with me. Let's, let's walk together. Let's journey together. Such a powerful thing. Such an amazing invitation. An invitation to friendship, to kinship to intimacy. Do you see what I mean? It's actually an amazing, amazing invitation. You can understand why. In just those 11 words, they thought, that essentially he's bringing them to a moment of crisis where they think, this, there's something so precious being offered to me here. Of course I'll have to leave everything else behind to receive it. But let me say, by the way, this is also a moment of amazing grace. Like in case you think that they're having to earn anything or pay for anything, this is Jesus coming to people who are just like living in obscurity. 
Nobody knows who they are. They're living their own quiet life, just getting along with their own, you know, their regular day-to-day work. And then in comes Jesus. He breaks into their lives. It's a moment of amazing generosity, amazing kindness, amazing grace. They haven't impressed him with their Bible knowledge. They haven't achieved anything for the kingdom. He just comes along and says, come along, you. Which is precisely what he does for us. It's all grace, but it's not without cost. You can have all of this, but it will cost you everything. There was a financial cost. So at the time this was written, uh, most people in that society lived as what you might call subsistence peasants. right? So they've, everyone's got their own tiny little patch of land, they're growing some vegetables and they're perhaps keeping a couple of animals, and and that's how they live. They're just living off their own piece of land. And in that environment, these people are business owners, right? They own a boat. They've got an income. Sometimes they can catch an enormous catch of fish, and then they're wealthy for a while. Like this is, these are... And and he's saying, you have to leave your boat behind. There's a financial cost. There's a cost in terms of status. Hey, we're the guys with the boat, There's a cost in terms of identity. We're the fishermen. There's a relational cost. In verse 21, James and John have to leave their father behind to follow Jesus. I've been really struggling with this passage, trying to figure out... How do we apply this to our own lives? Like, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to just renounce all of our stuff. We're supposed to remove all of our possessions. We're supposed to rebuke all of everything that makes up our lives. Like, what what are we supposed to do? Um, You know, it seems to me that it's much easier in some ways. If you live in a place where, where you're being persecuted for your faith, then this passage kind of makes sense. But for us, in our... Western culture where most of us keep our food in a fridge. Like, what, what are we supposed to do with this thing? And I read this tiny little book that was on my bookshelf by a man called John White, and it was called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he said this, and I, th- I found it so helpful. He said, the call to follow Christ is not so much a call to renounce everything that you have and everything that you are, so much as it is to reevaluate its worth. I think that's it. I think we're supposed to look at everything that, is, that we've valued, everything that we've considered precious, and said, yeah, do you know what? Not so much anymore. And that's what happens for Simon and Andrew. The boat that used to be the most precious thing in their lives is no longer the most precious thing in their lives. These relationships that used to be everything to them are no longer everything to them. Being recognized as being prosperous and successful was the ultimate goal in life, but it's no longer the ultimate goal in their lives. Suddenly, Jesus is the treasure. He's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in a field. Everything else isn't worth tuppence in comparison with the opportunity to be with Jesus. We have this dog. He's called Teddy. When I say we have this dog, I mean Taryn and the kids have a dog. And I suffer the dog. And he drives me absolutely crazy because he, he'll bark at thin air or a butterfly or a fly or, you know, a small bird. 
But if a man comes along the driveway in a balaclava and, you know, with a, you know, a hammer in his hand, he'll just be like wagging his tail. Hiya, come on in, you know, welcome to the family. Completely useless as a guard dog. He also does this thing where, where he will clamp his jaws around anything like, that he sees. That if there's a sweaty sock on the floor, he's like, that is now my treasure. You know, he clamps his jaws around it, and there's nothing you can do. You can't price his jaws up. There's nothing you can say, drop it, drop it, until you're blue in the face. He will never drop it. Until you go to the fridge and you just put out a little piece of sausage or a little piece of ham or something like that and you say, look, Teddy, look what I've got. Immediately, that sweaty sock is like, oh, that's disgusting to me. I want the piece of ham. And do you know what? Teddy can teach us a lot. I think Jesus is inviting us to reconsider the value of what we have. And you know what? On the other side of gripping hold of everything, if we were to release our hold, our release our grip, release our sense of value on the things that we have, on the other side of that is real freedom. The invitation is not to renounce or to rebuke or to remove, it's to reevaluate. It's worth in comparison with the value that Jesus brings. Why don't we stand?